You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland woke up on the Big Island this morning. On her agenda was to visit a bird sanctuary following the news yesterday that $16 million of President Biden's infrastructure bill would go toward helping to save Hawaii's remaining forest birds threatened with extinction. Holland made the announcement yesterday morning at the opening of the Hawaii Conservation Council, which marks its 30th anniversary, and then again in the afternoon following a tour of Windward Oahu, which included a stop at the restored Heio Fish Pond and Farm on leased land. Holland was accompanied by State Land Board Director Don Chang. She's the first Native Hawaiian woman to serve as chair of the State Board of Land and Natural Resources. Chang's family ties are with fishermen in that area. Hawaii U.S. Senator Brian Schatz was also on hand at the afternoon tour. This place is especially appropriate for her to visit as the first Native American Secretary of the United States Department of the Interior. The Heia site is where Native Hawaiian land and ocean management is not an aspiration, it's not a slogan, but just the way things work in this beautiful watershed. For generations, Kalo has been a healthy food staple and a key part of Native Hawaiian culture, land, and life. And here at Heia, its cultivation also helped to create ancient fish farming in the downstream fish pond. It's about caring for the land in a way that makes the lo'i and the fish ponds more productive. That care that started hundreds of years ago is still happening today. Through sites like this one, Western Science is now beginning to measure and understand the enduring native wisdom of this approach. That was Senator Brian Schatz, who was touring with Interior Secretary Deb Holland. They were in Hilo today for the opening of the new U.S. Geological Survey facility and will be visiting our national parks. Holland visited the Pearl Harbor National Memorial earlier this week. This is not Holland's first visit to Hawaii, but she brings a cultural sensitivity to the office during this trip. Here's part of the speech that she gave in Heia Valley yesterday. Like many indigenous people, I grew up with a strong connection to the land. It's a connection that came from my dad, who made sure my siblings and I spent every opportunity in the outdoors. It came from my grandpa, who would pull me into the cornfield to work alongside him when my cousins ditched me to go play somewhere else on the mesas at Laguna. But those connections are being threatened. We're facing a critical moment in our fight to combat biodiversity loss, protect precious ecosystems, and stem the worst impacts of the climate crisis. At the Department of the Interior, we're committed to addressing these intersecting crises to ensure that plants, animals, their habitats, and the communities that surround them are protected and coexist in a healthy balance. Through President Biden's Investing in America agenda, we're putting local communities in the driver's seat as we meet the climate and biodiversity crises head on. That includes using indigenous knowledge and entering into co-stewardship agreements with local tribes, local communities to identify best practices for our conservation work. It also includes prioritizing locally led partnerships to drive our restoration efforts, which is a key pillar of President Biden's America the Beautiful initiative. And we're matching our words with action and resources, deploying historic funding to support these efforts. At the Interior Department, we're stewarding a $2 billion investment from both the bipartisan infrastructure law 
and the Inflation Reduction Act, thanks to you and your colleagues, Senator, to restore our nation's lands and waters, safeguard endangered species, and advance climate resilience. To guide these new investments, we launched the Restoration and Resilience Framework earlier this year. This framework works to support coordination across our agency's restoration and resilience programs. It is driving us toward collaborative, strategic, and measurable ecosystem restoration benefits across the country. What I love about it is that it serves as a roadmap of where we can make the most difference. Many of the points on this roadmap or Keystone initiatives came directly from the communities they serve. That includes right here in Hawaii. Today, I'm thrilled to share that at the department, we're committing nearly $16 million to a new Keystone initiative to conserve and protect Hawaiian forest birds. As I'm sure you all know, these birds are an integral ecological and cultural component of the Hawaiian islands. They reflect the health of forests and represent cultural connections between native Hawaiians and the islands. Yet due to climate change, invasive mosquitoes and other threats, they are on a path toward imminent extinction unless we act. Historically, there were over 50 different nectar birds in Hawaii. That number is now down to just 17. This is an urgent issue and one we are prioritizing with new investments and a deep focus. Today's announcement builds on the department's strategy for preventing the extinction of Hawaiian forest birds, which we released last year. And through new historic investments from the Biden-Harris administration, our staff on the ground have already begun to execute several essential efforts around the work. Some of these efforts include establishing captive care programs and facilities for bird species most at risk of imminent extinction, controlling and eradicating invasive mosquitoes that spread avian malaria, and relocating new populations of bird species to higher elevation refugia to keep them safe. As we move forward on these urgent efforts, we are prioritizing management with the native Hawaiian community through consultation, knowledge sharing, and traditional practices. Because you're Native American, what is it about, I guess, what you've seen so far that touches your heart? Well, one of the things we did yesterday was we had an opportunity to have a community meeting with folks who essentially were affected by the assimilation policies of the federal government. Sometimes going way back, they some of them were descendants of folks who had suffered through those eras. And I feel like in many respects, indigenous communities here in Hawaii, but also across the country, are working to heal themselves from some of those terrible traumas, the intergenerational trauma that so many people are affected by. And I like to think that with all of the efforts that the Biden-Harris administration is putting forward, that that era of healing will continue to go on. I see healing all over this area where people are bringing back native plants and native ways of doing things. and. I think that indigenous knowledge is one of the absolute most important things that we can practice in this era of the climate crisis. That was Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who was in Honolulu yesterday and is on the Big Island today.
The U.S. Army Schofield Barracks Base is home to this country's only seed bank funded by the military. We introduced you to two women working at its uh, natural resource program yesterday. Today we hear from the head of the Rare Seed Program, Tim Chambers. We take you around the lab where alarms sound when power to the drying chambers fail, sending alerts to key staff on their cell phones. Some team members also work on separating seeds from fruits by hand. Or the work can be done by machines too. Chambers demonstrates using a special separating device. This is the seed separator, they call it the clipper. And it's made by some ingenious people in Iowa. It uses a series of two screens, agitation and forced air, so we can manipulate all of those things so that we can hone in on the size of seeds we're working with. And there are hundreds of screens that you can purchase and we can change the, the force of the air or the airflow to kind of adjust this for seeds that are as big as your fist to seeds that are as small as little slivers of wood or something like that. So very tiny stuff. And we're gonna pass the alvee through it. The end result is pretty close to pure seed. And Chambers works closely with his counterparts uh, from other seed programs. Uh, his program works with more than 100 endangered plants, including rare native Hawaiian vines found in areas under control by the Army here on Oahu or Hawaii Island. Chambers feels the guaranteed uh, annual $50 million in funding is impactful. For me, it's really exciting that the U.S. Army has this contract because we are funded to do this work. And if we are doing conservation work outside that context, we'd be looking that for that funding to carry out a lot of that work. So it, it, it makes us much more efficient and directed in our work. And so in the seed bank, we can, we can see some of our conservation work through just kind of analysis of simple metrics like our collections growing or us understanding the best storage condition for a specific species and its seed. So once we understand, oh, this condition is going to allow us to maintain these collections for potentially greater than 50, maybe even 100 years, I think those are really benchmarks of success because that information then can be taken that the Army is invested in and disseminate across the state so other programs can start use that information, right? And we make that available. So and we do that through cooperation with all of the partners. Um, well, our area of operation is largely Oahu, so partners at DOFA, right? And through the, the Plant Extinction Prevention Program, through the watershed management projects, and uh, then across the state through sharing information about our successes or, or, or our research with seed storage, we can share that with Lion Arboretum and their seed bank. We can share that with National Tropical Botanic Gardens. We can share that with Maui Nui Botanic Gardens and the Hawaii Island Seed Bank and vice versa. So we have a, a program that we, or a group that we work with under the Hawaii Plant Conservation Network, or Laukahi, through the Seed Bank Partnership, or the Hawaii Seed Bank Partnership. We, have, we are working to standardize our approaches, share our experiences, do cooperative research so we can move that needle forward. Mm -hmm. Although we can hold things for long periods inside of a seed bank, it should still be like a bank. We want to utilize that material to move this work forward. And so 
this idea of ex situ conservation or conservation off-site, like through a seed bank or storing these things in tissue culture or in a living collection like at a botanic garden, these are absolutely necessary tools in Hawaii to move conservation forward. And so I, I think people sometimes don't see the ultimate value in the fact that we have several hundred taxes stored in a seed bank or several hundred species stored in a seed bank that we, if, if our research is robust, we know how to grow these things, we know how long they store, so when we pull them out, we can effectively and efficiently propagate them to reestablish them in the landscape. And I think when you look at across the seed banks in, in Hawaii, there's a tremendous diversity there with obviously Lion Aborean have the highest diversity of plant species and storage because they're working across the state and our, our efforts here are largely focused on Oahu and we support work on Hawaii Island as well. So our goals are much more focused around the needs of the Army, but I think our impacts are very broad, right, because we can share that across our group of partners. Can you give any examples, success stories, or an area that maybe you feel really proud that you worked really hard and you were able to you know, bring back. Sicyos macrophyllus is one example that PTA, this is a species on the Big Island, and they had lost a population, and they had seed in their storage facility, so in a refrigerator, but yet they they didn't have the capacity at the time to figure out how to grow it, and we, we needed to reestablish this population, and so PTA sent us a subset of seed, and we shared a seed with Lion Arboretum, and we, we have focused it in two directions. So Lion Arboretum operates a tissue culture lab, and so they're doing their work under sterile conditions. We work in this more conventional seed banking. Our lab is not a sterile lab, right? We try to keep things clean. And we both came to conclusions that, oh, we know how to grow it. And we used our both our common approaches of research to develop an effective propagation protocol that could be shared back with PTA. So you put your heads together and... A, we know how to grow it. They can use that seed to reestablish that population. And they can use that seed to cultivate plants and build a larger collection and storage that will be useful for future restoration efforts of that species. We knew that population was lost, right? It wasn't extinct from its whole distribution, but that population is lost. And when we lose a population, that's important genetic diversity that if we don't have seed collections representing them, we can't use that diversity in our restoration efforts or our um, reintroduction efforts and or our management to kind of uh, manage this thing in place and keep it from extinction. So that's one example. Another example would be Guania vitifolia, which is called a Wahoo chew stick or Hawaii chew stick. And that was, populations were known from Keao and Wainaikai. And as of 2018, there was only the Keao population remaining, um, but a fire wiped through that and destroyed what was a population of 70 plus in wild individuals. However, through our collection efforts through time, we had a great representation of those wild individuals in the seed bank. Just we didn't have a lot of seed to work with, right? But we had those seeds. And so we just started to regenerate th th those seeds in cultivation. So we built what we called the guanyard <laughs> because it's a vine also. And it's called vitifolia because it has the, the leaf shape. It's very similar to grape, right? So we built 50 plus trellises and we brought, we propagated all our collections and we took those plants and we brought them together so they could breed together and we could harvest even more seeds. And now we have seed of those founders that can be shared uh, with DOFA for uh, reintroduction efforts. 
Um, we're going to duplicate those collections and then house them at Lyons so the state can freely withdraw accessions um, for restoration efforts in the future. So those are like big success stories. Here we almost lost a whole species on the island, and but we had the tools and now the ability and the opportunity to increase that seed and then make even more seed available for reintroduction efforts. Just share the knowledge. Share the knowledge um, and use the resources as effectively as possible. We may have lost those plants, and that's exactly why the seed bank is there. That's the insurance policy. Fire happened, we lost all the plants, but we have a representation, and we can work from there to kind of rebuild those populations on Oahu. That was Tim Chambers, a rare seed manager at the Army's only seed lab in the country. It has some 30 million seeds in its bank. Tomorrow we continue our seed week when we take a visit to Manoa Valley, where we peek into the native plant propagating labs at Line Arboretum. Getting older, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Jessica Terrell on the line today. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. So I'm getting older, <laughs> and I know many other of Hawaii residents are too, and that's what you folks are going to be focusing on. Yeah, so Hawaii has the fastest aging population in the U.S. The whole country is dealing with uh, an aging population as the baby boomer generation um, enters retirement. But um, it's happening a little bit faster here, and we have the highest life expectancy in the country as well. So we're going to see a pretty big increase in the number of folks over the age of 80, um, which is a good thing. People are living longer, um, hopefully living healthier lives, keeping um, you know the wisdom that they have around. Uh, but it presents a, a challenge in that we are already facing a shortage of caregivers, um, and uh, fewer and fewer family um, caregivers as well. So some, some big challenges in terms of supporting um, people aging here. And you start out your story talking with a very active 80-year-old uh, uh, Pearl City resident. But, you know, not everybody that age is as spry maybe as she is. Yeah, I mean, she's she's lucky in that she's 80 and she's driving and she's active. Um, but after the age of 80, we do start to see a, a higher likelihood that people will have, you know, one or more disabilities and need a little bit of extra care. And that's kind of where one of the problems comes in because uh, we're already having, you know, the shortage of workers. We see that there are wait lists for services, for um, in-home help, which is really, I think, the, the goal of a lot of people in the aging industry is to help people stay at home because it is much more affordable than nursing homes. An uh, average nursing home in Hawaii runs about $150,000 a year, um, which is out of reach for, you know, the vast majority of folks. Um, but figuring out how we're going to really bolster um, that. And the other problem is that, you know, the high cost of living, it's really hitting um, everybody, particularly also our, our seniors. Um, and that's driving a lot of younger workers away. So we see more people here in Hawaii now who um, don't have immediate family to help them. Um, and, you know, you know uh, I know that um, uh, there was a home care company that shut down earlier this year and there was a bit of a scramble, you know, for families to make sure that someone could come in the home and, and help their seniors. Uh, so, yeah, you've got the care and then, uh, you know, for the 
elderly that are the Kapuna that are maybe fortunate enough to have their homes, uh, you know, I, I know there was some talk at one time about, you know, having people share, you know, their rooms, right? Rent out their rooms to someone else. Yeah, so there's an organization that started during the pandemic called Home Sharing Hawaii, and their idea is to match um, people who need uh, rentals with uh, sen- seniors, but really anyone who has space. Um, but it, they are also clear that they're not a caregiving service. So the people who um, are offering their space really do need to be independent. And the timing of, of starting during the pandemic has made it, I think, a bit of a challenge to get off the ground, though it's certainly one of many solutions that people are looking at um, in terms of how we can creatively move forward as a society and, and make this better for everyone. Right. We've got to get creative and try and figure out, you know, how else can we meet our needs? Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the good things, I think, um, that we can look forward to. There was a study from the University of Luxembourg that found to a certain point uh, when there is an aging workforce, it actually does stimulate a certain amount of extra innovation if the right um, pieces are put into place um, to support that from a business side. So we've certainly seen a lot of innovation during the pandemic in terms of um, how we deliver health care. And we we should see a lot more of that, hopefully. Um, But it's going to take a lot of collaboration to um, figure out not only how to support seniors and caregivers who are under stress, but also the state as a whole. You know, uh, older workforce or fewer workers will impact uh, tax revenues. It'll impact worker shortages everywhere, which we're already facing uh, in so many industries. And so it's really something that we need to start a conversation about now, um, because over the next, you know, between now and 2035, uh, when the last baby boomer enters retirement, it's going to be a really dramatic change in our demographics here in the state. So... Well, I remember when uh, Mayor Frank Fossey had talked about the silver tsunami, you know, that was coming and he was trying to figure out ways that we could maybe provide a, a medical industry here to help, you know, serve that uh, community. But, you know, we're facing it ourselves. Yeah, the, the idea of, of providing a medical industry for folks from other countries or other states is a significant challenge because we don't even have that ourselves. But there are some interesting uh, collaborations that are happening. You know, UH is, is working with the university from Japan to kind of look at new innovations and ways that we can um, really help the next generation of retirees and then ourselves when, when we also get to retirement age really thrive. Okay. Well, we know you, you folks are going to be um, looking at all these issues uh, facing our Kapuna. Uh, but thank you so much. Thanks. That was reporter Jessica Tur- uh, Terrell with today's Reality Check. To get the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Furniture Plus Design, designing collaborative environments, extending the office to the home workspace, integrating technology with ergonomic functionality and comfort. FurniturePlusDesign.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll explore the intersection of art, technology, and libraries. 
We'll hear from Solomon Enos, resident artist at the State Art Museum, and Stacy Aldridge, Hawaii State Librarian, about their collaboration. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Nations held its second session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee in France earlier this year. Its purpose to further develop an international legally binding document to reduce plastic pollution in land and marine environments around the world. Among the nearly 1,700 participants in 170 countries at the three-day session was Recycle Hawaii's Executive Director, Christine Kubat. She recently talked with the Conversations Brussels Subiono about the takeaways. There were, when it was all said and done, 1,673 people in attendance. These were representatives from what is known as member states. We would think of these as nations or countries. They had 745 reps from 167 countries. There were um, what are known as intergovernmental organizations, IGOs, NGOs. And as far as I know, I was the only person from Hawaii there. If there was anyone else from Hawaii there and you're listening to this, please contact me. Let's connect. Let's share experiences. And the overall experience was, you know, this is part of a process, an ongoing process. So the very first meeting was held in Uruguay late November and December. This is the second session. This is the time when all of the different parties involved were you know, laying out their positions, basically putting their cards on the table. The next session, which will be held in Nairobi, Kenya in late November, that's when the actual negotiations begin. So you, know, you don't have a lot of expectations at this point because it's all very preliminary. But in general, I would say I was very encouraged especially because I'm someone who's been thinking about plastic pollution for, you know, a good six, seven years. And to see this global awareness, that was encouraging. The other thing that was really inspiring to me is that there was a contingent within the civil society unit, and that's how observers like me get to participate. We're not member states, we're from civil society. There's a contingent of indigenous people who really were empowered by meeting with each other and connecting and sharing stories. Also people from what is known as fence line communities. These are the people that live next to the plants where the plastic gets made. And I saw within that networking, this just rising power and awareness about the issue that I think will bring us to a good resolution. It sounds like this UN committee is basically trying to get countries to agree to either reduce plastic production and persuade consumers to reduce plastic consumption. Of course, whenever there's push for a decrease in such a widespread and profitable industry, there's going to be those who agree and those who don't agree. 
who are the ones most against and most in favor of this action? So the oil producing countries, and then also China as a major manufacturer, you know, a lot of the goods that we buy on the shelves that are either packaged in or made from plastic or coming from China, that's where we saw the resistance. And really, it was pretty tragic because, yeah, you know, this is a serious problem. It is as serious, if not worse than climate. And it's just because Mm -hmm. of the nature of it, you know, we do have ways that we can address the changes that are coming with the global temperature rise. But how are we going to get microplastic pollution out of amniotic fluid, out of our bloodstreams? You know, it's horrifying. So yeah, that part was disappointing. You know, I don't know that we should expect much less, but what would be really good is if these countries would just see that this is coming and then begin to pivot towards all of the economic potential. Because, you know, if you think about it, the need is for us to reduce plastic consumption. It's called consumption, you know, use by 70 to 80 percent. So where are all those other products going to come from? Where is that other packaging going to come from? If these countries, and we call them the Petros in our arena, if they would just pivot and, you know, get really engaged and involved, they would realize that this is a huge economic opportunity. Who are the people that are most affected? Do they tend to be island states like us? You know, I know we get a lot of uh, plastic marine debris What are some areas of the world that are impacted? You know, it depends on how you look at it. Like here's an alarming statistic. You will find microplastic, nanoplastic particles in the air column in nearly the same concentration above the Swiss Alps, which is a very pristine area, as you find in downtown Chicago. And that is because these particles are so fine. They get picked up. They get carried by the air currents. They're everywhere. And again, they find evidence of plastic pollution in the Marianas Trench. I mean, how far away from people can you get, right? So at that level, no one is impacted more or less. But when we look at the other end of the value chain, when we look at plastic production, there are people that live next to these places where plastic gets manufactured. They have the highest rates of cancer. If the kids are lucky, they get asthma. If they're not so lucky, they end up with these horrible forms of cancer. And so we as consumers of plastic need to be aware of that. Like every time we pick up a plastic toy, which is a totally unnecessary purchase, honestly, we're giving our child joy at the expense of some child that lives next to this. We also have the places where the plastic is washing up on the shore. But as bad as that is, when we go out and we buy a plastic fence and install it, we're putting this thing in our marine environment where we have really intense solar radiation rates. We have very high concentrations of salt in the air, and that plastic degrades into microplastics. So as much as we're concerned about the plastic washing up on our shore, when we put plastic out into our environment, we're creating plastic pollution. And this is why it's so important for us to really understand policy in terms of who's impacted at every stage of the production cycle. And that is why our organization is taking a very strong stance against plastic recycling, which might come as a surprise to people, but it's really, it's not a solution. And in these circles that we're working in, it's actually clearly tagged as a false solution. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's not a solution? 
Well, first of all, plastic is not infinitely recyclable. So you might be able to create these few little loops at one point and maybe take a plastic bottle and recycle it, you know, four or six times. But after that, it's going to be what's known as downcycled. And that means it will get turned either into polyester clothing or maybe carpet or maybe synthetic turf. And at that point, it's going to degrade into microplastics. The largest source of microplastic pollution is from washing polyester clothing. Because when you wash the clothes, it sheds these tiny particles and it goes into the water. And then the water goes, you know, wherever it ends up. Captain Charles Moore is very famous for saying that ocean is downhill of everything. Another big source is tire abrasion on the roads. So if we take plastic and we use it a few times as a bottle and then put it into a bench or, God forbid, make some kind of functional art or something out in the environment that kids are going to climb on. All we're doing is we're taking something that we have in our hands that we could safely sequester someplace and we're putting it into the environment where it's going to degrade into microplastics. So what do you think is the solution for the average person? I imagine it's to stop buying plastic, stop using plastics. What can we use in place that is recyclable or or that will not degrade and impact the environment? Yeah, so now you're talking about this. It's kind of, I'm starting to call it the twilight zone, where it's this in-between state where we understand that we need to reduce our use of plastic significantly. But then what do we do with the plastic we already have? And what does that transition look like? And I'm very happy to report that there's a lot of exciting developments going on around what are called true plastic substitutes. So when we look at bioplastics, we don't call those substitutes. We call those plastic alternatives because there's still a lot of problems with them. But excitingly, there's a company called New Light. They have a carbon capture technology where they're capturing carbon and making that into a true plastic substitute. Those kinds of things really excite me. Um, Our organization is looking to possibly attract a facility here in Hawaii where we could look at the things we really, really need to make out of a plastic-like substance and use that kind of technology instead. And then, yeah, every time you go to a market, even a farmer's market, I mean, the first thing they'll do is grab that plastic bag and stick your you know, mango in there and you're, you can just be like, no, please don't, <laughs> which I do. I've started a movement called Play Without Plastic. I'm encouraging parents and grandparents to take a pledge not to give a child under four years old a plastic plaything because they don't really know the difference. All these little things in our lives we can do to move away from plastic. And then, yeah, we'll be using more paper, more glass. There's a whole trend called paperfication which you can imagine what that means, where we'll be packaging things in paper. And yeah, we do eventually have to get in there and make sure that all of these cycles are sustainable and truly good for the environment. But the problems that we have with plastic and microplastic pollution so far outshadow the problems that we have in perfecting those life cycles with other materials that we just need to abandon the plastic and focus on those other materials and we'll get there. The next UN committee session that will be continuing to to work on this international agreement to stop plastic pollution takes place in November in Kenya, I believe. Do you have plans on going to that one as well? I do plan on going. I'm determined to get there. There actually will be 
other sessions after that. There's one to follow in Canada, and the final one will be in South Korea. But the real work is going to start at this next session. I plan to go. I'm going to do what I can to encourage others. It would be especially exciting for us, our Recycle Hawaii organization, to bring along folks that could participate in the Indigenous Peoples major group. And yeah, let's see who might take an interest and want to join in. Christine Kubat, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate you talking with me. It's been my pleasure, Russell. That was Recycle Hawaii's Christine Kubat talking with HBO's Russell Subiono. If you're interested in attending the next UN committee session working on reducing plastic pollution, it is going to take place in Kenya this November. We'll have a link to contact information for Kubat on the conversation page of our website later today. Tune to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And we now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Aoku'u. And thanks to the Makale Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology for today's field recordings. The Aoku'u, or black-crowned night heron, is the only heron that's common across the Hawaiian Islands that's an indigenous species, meaning that it's native here as well as other parts of the world. As their name implies, these herons have black crowns that run down their backs with light gray undersides, yellow legs, and piercing red eyes. Juveniles, though, look different from adults. They're mostly brown with light speckling. Aoku'u can be found near most shallow, fresh, and saltwater areas where they feed on a variety of small aquatic animals like fish and frogs, and sometimes even mice and baby birds. When Aoku'u are standing still, they often have a hunchback appearance, but their long neck becomes apparent when they walk. These graceful, broad-winged waterbirds can often be seen in flight in the mornings and evenings, which is also the best time to hear their loud, hoarse call. Black-ground night herons are excellent at fishing and are even known to use pieces of bread or other objects to lure in fish with the bait, an unusual form of tool use in birds. Aoku'u are one of the many birds mentioned in the Kumulipo, or Hawaiian creation chant. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. Think you've got the chops to be on the air? HPR is looking for a new part-time host for our late-night music program, Bridging the Gap. Candidates should have a basic understanding of radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, perform well under pressure, and love music, of course. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs.
the power of hip-hop. Not hard to imagine following the phenomenal success of Hamilton on Broadway and considering that the genre is celebrating its 50th anniversary this August. Today, HBR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactall joins us this morning to talk about the Hawaiian take on hip-hop. Good morning. Good morning from Molokai. Yes, so what you got for us today? So a Molokai couple, Miley and Hanohano Ne'ehu, have created a hip-hop album that tells the story of Hawaii's history, and it's a collaborative effort that's actually been named a finalist in this weekend's Nahoku Hanohano Awards, and they'll also be performing live at the show. The album's timeline um, starts with the Kumulipo, and the, that's the beginning of creation in Hawaii's history. And it goes all the way till today uh, through the tracks of the album. There's 13 of them. But it tells this story in the medium of hip-hop, which could be a little bit unexpected, but it's also this really powerful way to inspire and to educate and reach today's youth. So let's go ahead and have a listen. Here's a clip from the track called Big Mo'o Energy. The dragon, Mo'o, head facing the great beyond, peer into the future, the white dawn has yet to come as front, the opioid, the youth, they reach, they touch, they examine, test boundaries on the path they see. So this album was a collaborative effort, not only with Maile and Hanohano, but with good friends that they say they've been working with for years. They were joined by hip-hop MCs, some of the best in the state, academic professors, music producers, chanters, historians, all to ensure that not only the quality of the music of this album was as high as it possibly could be, but also focusing on the historical accuracy of the stories that they're telling. And so to make this all happen, they did it remotely. They met on Zoom, as many of us did, um, every month for about a year. And then the group came to the Na'ehu's small, off-the-grid house um, deep in a valley on Moloka'i's east end, a beautiful, beautiful spot. And they stayed there for two different five-day sessions. And so this whole group worked on the deck. They made notes and they brainstormed ideas on this huge roll of paper that was spread out on the table. And the whole album was recorded right there in their small recording studio at their at their house. And they not only created this album, um, but it was this whole experience for the group. They worked in the fish pond. They ate off the land of Molokai. They visited Tiki in classrooms on Molokai. So it was really this uh, amazing experience for the group as they described it. And Amale and Hanohano talked about how amazing the process was, but also that it was really intimidating. <laughs> They're not only to work with these friends who they describe as supremely talented, but also to create this historical timeline through the music that was accurate. And they talked about how important it was to them to do it right, which is why they brought all of these resources and friends on board. And they both referenced, while talking to them, they referenced the mana that was put into it, that energy, that intention from all those involved and how powerful that was. The album is named Ho'ukupu, which means gift or offering. And here's what they say about why. Everyone was so afraid that they weren't bringing enough, even myself. And so we had to remind ourselves that like what we're giving is so amazing. And it's just a true gift or an offering for all of Hawaii to use forever. Something that was taught from a different perspective than what we're used to in the textbooks. 
because of hip hop, I think music in general can really relay powerful messages that otherwise can't be relayed in other mediums. Even through a simple conversation with somebody, people can get all riled up and like it turns into a debate. But if you're listening to Bob Marley, you can't deny the way it makes you feel. The, you know, the connection that you feel to people, to place through those types of music or, or art forms. So that's what we wanted to do. I mean, that's just so powerful. And, and the end result was terrific. I mean, that clip that you played earlier, you know, I hadn't heard that before, but wow, that's, you know, heavy stuff. It is. They did a really beautiful job putting it together. And they are both, both Miley and Hanohano Na'e, who are Kanaka Motley artists. And Hano was born and raised on Molokai. He comes from a family of Paniolo, or cowboys. His stage name is the Paniolo Prince. And he has a background uh, in rodeo. He also worked in Aloha Aina his whole life. And grew up dancing hula and really got into storytelling and poetry, um, sound poetry. And that's how the hip-hop connection was made for him. Miley is a cultural practitioner. She's also a hula dancer and artist. Her small business creates this beautiful hand-dyed wearable art. She's an educator, a Hawaiian language teacher who's actually developed a whole Hawaiian language curriculum that's widely used, and music is a huge part of their family life as well. And not only did they want to create this music and this album, but they created a whole curriculum around it, which is really incredible. So it's, it's not only something that you can listen to casually, but it's something that can be used in the classroom as a learning tool and they made this beautiful textbook that goes through the history and has discussion prompts for each of the tracks and the subjects. It's already being used in classrooms, um, including UH College of Education. So it's it's an amazing resource. Well that's terrific. And you know, I I didn't realize that that the uh, awards were this weekend. They are. So they're finalists for hip hop album of the year. And they were also asked to perform live during the July first show. And when uh, Miley talked about the Nahoku Hanohano producer calling, and she was just in complete shock. And she had to hold the phone and yell, holy bleep, and then come back on and say, are you serious? This was just such an amazing opportunity for them. Um, and they said that, you know, hip-hop doesn't usually take the main stage in Hawaii, so it was it was really incredible for them. But they say, regardless of how they do at the awards, they feel like they've already won. This album, for me, just being able to finish it and put it out there to be available to any of our children, any of our people, any non-Kanaka, anybody around the planet at any time from here forevermore, to me is we won already. I don't care about what kind of sales the album does. I don't care about if we win a Nahoku or not. The fact that it's being taught in our schools, the kids going to be able to go and go learn about who they are, where we come from how amazing was, how sad, how tragic, how glory, you know, all of that, we want. Yeah, you and know? they're rapping along with it. They're memorizing all the lyrics. Yeah. It's just amazing. It's we, like, we grew up memorizing the lyrics to Dre and Snoop, <laughs> you know? It's like, whoa, now we have hip hop music that's like our story. That's terrific. It really is, and it'll be exciting to hear those awards this weekend, they're actually not the only Molokai artists that will be represented. Um, Molokai musician Jeremiah Koholawa'a is in the running for the top 10 favorites inter uh, favorite entertainers of the year and also uh, reggae album of the year along with other Molokai artists that will be represented at the awards. So it'll be a really 
uh, really neat event. And of course, um, Miley and Hanohano um, sharing their hip hop on the live stage statewide, which, you know, they said is just really validating for them to have that opportunity. Um, you know, they said they don't do it for the recognition, but just to be able to share this history, this medium of hip hop. Um, and they talked about how they, one of the important things for them is to kind of dispel some of the neg- negative connotations around hip hop and use it as a really powerful tool um, that has been used throughout history as a catalyst for change. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I think they're, they've made a really powerful album that does exactly that. Uh, it, it's terrific. I mean, you know, I want to get up and, and, and dance now, but I want to listen to more. Uh, but thank you so much uh, for bringing this, uh, you know, to light. And I know there are a lot of people that will be uh, rooting for Molokai. Lots of talent on the Friendly Isle there. For sure. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have been uh, chatting with uh, uh, HPR's Catherine uh Cluett Pactall, and you can find this story online. Listen to more of it at hawaiipublicradio.org. Through the night, graceful as the breeze, sacred guardians of the season spring, supernatural powers you would not believe. Big Mo'o energy, Big Mo'o energy. There's a family known for setting forests ablaze. But tell me whose job it was to keep the forest safe. The forest of Hilo House. Okay, we're out of time, but up tomorrow. We're going to take you to Manoa Valley to visit the Lion Arboretum Seed Bank and Propagating Laboratory. Got a seed story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all our shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.